Hey everybody, welcome back to the Iron Works Podcast. I'm Pastor Tyler. And I'm Zach. And we are continuing today our series on creation and what the Bible has to say about it, about science and Genesis and all the related topics there. And before we get into that, uh, Zach, last week was the 4th of July. Happy Independence Day to you. Happy Independence Day to you. You have a good Independence Day? We had a lot of fun. We went and hung out. Cooked out, ate some folks' steaks, which we really appreciated. We're going to do the um, fireworks. We have some awesome fireworks shows in town, and we were going to take the kids out, and then it just started raining, which it seems like it's the tradition down here. Uh, it always rains on 4th of July. Every year. And so we so weird. We figured we were just going to go ahead and not not do it, not bother, and miss the fireworks. I don't even know if they, <laughs> they did them. Sometimes you can hear them from our place. But thankfully, I had our neighbor who had spent way more money than I was willing to spend on mortars and was launching them right from his driveway, you know, 20 feet from our house so we had a great time just watching oh yeah we were launching off fireworks in our driveway and my oldest son uh we had been of course going through the day talking about what the revolution was all about and the founding fathers and don't tread on me and all that then uh we were launching the fireworks and (laughs) we're all cheering yay fireworks and my two-year-old was just so excited and then my nine-year-old boy (laughs) shouts Boo, England! <laughs> and I've never felt so proud as a father before. Yeah, in, in the in the place where we live, that's only going to get a good reception. He'll get a lot of he'll get a lot of encouragement for that. Yeah. No, we actually did the same thing. I was I was watching with the kids. You ever watch those old? Um, it's like a it was a Walt. It's on Disney Plus, and it was a Walt Disney show that they made for TV where they cut together a bunch of pieces of the old movie Johnny Tremaine which is a great movie. And then they were explaining some of the history behind it. So the kids were watching that and enjoying it. Have you ever found as a dad that if you want to show your kids something that's in black and white, you have to endure five minutes of complaining before they're actually ready to like watch the thing? We had a hard time getting our kids even to watch things with real people in it for a while. Oh like yeah, well, we've like, gotten if past that. It wasn't that. animated; they didn't really want anything yeah. to do with it. But they're they're past that. We've now, pushed thankfully. past that because we watched Davy Crockett, and so they realized that that was okay. But now we're trying to get them to the like, hey, yeah. it doesn't all have to be in color. It's hard making your kids all cultured, man. It's hard work as a dad. You yeah, see. it is. But <laughs> when your son shouts out "Boo, England!" on the Fourth of July, doing something right, isn't it? A weird quirk of fate how we be, we have now become such good friends with England after like it's, it's very funny. That was a big de- like you read your American history for a long time. Like liking England was like a death sentence, even like into the eighteen well, hundreds. Yeah. Like well, we fought two had wars fought against them. Yeah, they yeah. were trying to like plot with Texas. I don't to remember like get if rid it was during. Texas, I want to say it was during George and, W. Bush's presidency, where there was like some official English, like either the ambassador or something, spoke in D.C. and he happened to speak on the anniversary of the burning of Washington D.C. during the War of eighteen twelve, oh, which is the thing that happened. <laughs> and he opened with, he said, you know, this is, you know, I just want to respect. You know that, that this was this is this anniversary, this important anniversary where this library, you know, was burned. I think they burned the Library of Congress and they burned. I forget. They burned a lot they of stuff. Everything. The White House, all, yeah. The White House was. Burned and down. so he said, you know, I just I just want to take this opportunity from you know the people of England to say, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> and it was really funny and he got a laugh. So, about, but that was like a about thing. About time you apologized yeah, for that. Yeah, that was a real thing. But hey, man. say whatever you want about Meghan Markle. The Americans are slowly infiltrating the royalty I, hey man, of well, England. And you know that Winston Churchill, the greatest Englishman of all time, was married, half American. Yeah, and so, married, didn't he marry know. an American lady? I'm no, he that did up, not. Or his mom no, was an American. Not. His mom was an American. Yeah. So, you know, you're welcome, England. Yeah. But so anyway, anyway, guys, welcome not back to we're American to history. Yeah. <laughs> but we we're, we're before this podcast started, we were having a hard time focusing up. Yes, we were uh, having a goofy day. So, <laughs> uh, which was funny because we actually have a rather serious topic to get into today. Uh, we're talking about creationism, and last time we we brought this up, and we recognize that this is a touchy subject for a lot of folks, and sure. even those that believe in creation. Uh, 
would rather you just kind of sort of shut up about it because it's <laughs> not popular to talk about. And many people feel like it is a very easy way to dunk on the Christian faith mm. is like you don't even believe in evolution. And I remember William Lane Craig was being interviewed one time and it was him and an atheist were talking and the guy asked him, like one of the first questions, like, you know, do you believe in what, what do you believe the age of the earth is? And William Lane Craig is not really a creationist. And he's like, well, I believe that it's 14 billion years old. And the guy goes, well, that, that's a relief. I feel like we can talk now because that's sort of the attitude is that we have nothing to say to somebody that doesn't believe in this stuff. But uh, we talked last time about how there is, there is this weird reverence that our society has for science not the process, which Christians are absolutely in favor of. In fact, we've kind of sort of invented that. <laughs> yes. uh, but the the establishment, you know, with a capital S of science, like the accepted opinions, which you shouldn't even really have that because science is supposed to be always changing, always testable. And even if you feel like our hypotheses are ridiculous, there should still be a chance to have those things evaluated. So we talked about kind of the general thing. And today we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about this uh, because if we're going to form opinions on things the Bible talks about, we've got to look at what the Bible says. Yes. And this is what gets lost very often in this conversation as we start debating. Even if you hold to young earth creationism, you start debating the science before you start talking about what the scripture says. And there there has been in recent years, and I am convinced in a positive response, or shall we say negative response to Ken Ham. Uh, attempts to reinterpret mm. Genesis in order to accommodate evolution by high-profile Christian writers and theologians. And we're going to take uh, so look at the Bible and, and see what the Scripture has to say, because, Zach, that's where we start. Yeah, right? I wanna, We start with Scripture. <clears throat> I think that's a really important point. I remember, you remember when we were going through um, our discussion of the canon, and we talked about, um, I think it was Dr. Michael Kruger that pointed out, so he does such a good job of pointing out when you're talking about something like the canon, he said, look, you can explain this, and you can explain it historically, you can explain it all these other ways, but you have to accept that this is a supernatural discussion and it's going to happen within the boundaries that scripture sets up for you. You have to start there. Yeah, that's you, Michael Kruger. You, the, the canon is a supernatural issue. Right. Theological it's, issue. In other words, you can't in other words, you can't divorce it from that somehow and hope to actually understand it. I would argue that origins is the exact same thing. You can't have a discussion of origins separated from the, from scripture separated from scripture's demand that we live in a supernatural world and so we'll, we'll just be honest with you up front guys if you're coming from a different perspective on this you got to understand that this we believe is the way to do this is you must begin theologically answer the big theological questions and then you have a framework from which you can go out and understand scientific questions and worldview issues and all that if you go backwards even if you come to the right conclusions I believe that you will make some errors and you will end up setting yourself up for problems later on. So we we, yeah. we just start with scripture. I, and you know, that might not be satisfying if you're an intellectual type like me, but it's a good opportunity for you to humble yourself and recognize that this is where God has asked us to start. So let's get into that, Tyler. I'm, I'm super excited, man, about yeah. this, this topic. So let's... We're going to start on the Bible and we're yeah. going to go from there. Next week, I think we'll look at the, uh, the science itself and more of the... It's what feel like more apologetics issues. All of this is really, but uh, today is more. We're gonna look at the exegesis of the of the text. So let, let's talk about what we have first of all. First of all, what you have in the Bible is you have Genesis chapter one, two, and three, and following, but especially Genesis one and two, that describe the creation of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is the first verse of the Bible, and that is such a loaded statement on its own. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that it, it's uh, astonishing to me how 
Like that's the first thing the Bible says, and and we feel rather free to mess with that one. But you know, many people are feel comfortable standing under that umbrella with all sorts of different views. So then it proceeds to give us the classic six day story, yes. seven days really. Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. And then there was, and uh, you get the seven days, six days of creation, seven on which he rested. And then you get into Genesis chapter two, where it talks about. Uh, the beginning, the generations, a toledot, as the Genesis mm-hmm. term is, of the crea- heaven and the earth. And it talks about the Garden of Eden, how God crafted man by hand and it uh, put him in the garden and told him to keep it and took a rib from Adam's side. And um, you have these two stories that I would call complementary stories that describe God taking a very active hand in creating the world. And also these stories bear little to no resemblance to what a scientist will typically tell you took place at the beginning of time. So immediately, Zach, we are in conflict. Immediately in conflict with those that are scientific. You can't really escape that, I think. And this is, this is why we say you got to start theologically. If you start trying to, you know, Jerry rig everything to make these stories accommodate, I'm just going to, as you know, Tyler, I, I, a lot of times I, when these discussions that we're having, I tend to take a back seat because I'm kind of a late comer to some of these things like when we're talking about the canon i'm reading and learning and i'm learning a lot of this from you as my pastor this is one of these things where i you know i'm, I'm not going to set myself up some authority but i will say i have i read a lot about this man like i've spent a large portion of my life just immersed in this and the conclusion i've come between me and the lord is this this issue is at odds with with the current scientific worldview there's well, no way it is there's no way to yeah, bridge those things is. and so i i agree i would almost say that it's all you, you know like um it's like what they call in basketball, like a heat check. And I think the Lord basically has set that up at the beginning of scripture. Be like, look, are you, are you, do you want to keep reading? <laughs> like, cause if you're not going to accept, and, and you know, we talk about creation ex nihilo, which means mm-hmm. that it's not just, you know, and that, that's a very, that's a divisive point in and of itself. It's not just God assembled from some elements, a thing. No, it's, it is God spoke. God was preexistent. God spoke. Now stuff exists before, yeah. before there was any stuff. There was God. So you know, I, I almost think it's it's a case of the Lord saying, look, if you if you want to accept anything that comes after this, you you know, you must be this tall to ride this ride kind of thing. And and, and I, yeah. I, I think we should sit with that and not instead of immediately, like you said, jumping to, well, well, let me let me add some footnotes here, Lord. Let's just ask ourselves, are you willing to accept propositionally? Are you as a person who lives in in 2023, listening to this podcast, are you willing to accept the, the philosophical, metaphysical proposition that God created the world from nothing? And if you're not, then I don't know that you're ready to have this discussion. And right. I, I'm, I'm saying that in humility, not angrily. I think it's just, that's what it takes to be able to, to, to work through this theologically. Yeah. you. The Lord just tells us things. And, and you know, what I love about, um, I think is relevant to this issue, and we're kind of, you know, giving application already, but in, in the book of John, Jesus says things Mm -hmm. that don't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Even today, you look at them and you've got to really work through what (laughs) he's saying. And when they try to explain it or try to ask him to explain it or say, can you give us a little more information? He says, no. He says, you should know based on the things that I've done (laughs) Uh who I am. And therefore, you should accept every word that I say as true because I am the son of God. And I feel like that's similar to how the Lord handles this issue of creation. He's like, you should know just to accept what I've said by now. And uh, that's that's what we're trying to do here. <laughs> yeah. So we're looking at this early early text, and there's three main interpretive approaches to this that I want to examine. And there's maybe other ways to divide it, but this is how we're going to divide it today. 
I guess, well, technically four. The first one is the one that says there's nothing that we can learn from this passage whatsoever. It's There's nothing to learn from it. There's nothing to gain from it. This person is likely not a Christian, but they're out there. And uh, there maybe are even some Christians that that I don't, I guess, would technically fall under the umbrella of Christianity that say that might as well not even be there. You might as well just start with Genesis 12. That's one. I feel like that's got to be the rare one, right? Because even you know, even people who aren't that's saved, the secular view. We'll call that the secular view. Yeah, even we? people I mean, who aren't saved, like like you point out, maybe like uh, you know, people who are re- interested in rediscovering the Bible, but keeping their feet firmly planted in materialism, maybe a Jordan Peterson or something like that comes to mind. Even those people will really lean into, oh, but there's importance this way or that way. They, I, I really don't hear people unless, like you said, unless it's a Dawkins type person yeah. where it's just like, this is meaningless and it's a fairy tale. And I, would, I think that's how most non-believers would look at this. It's mm. just like, there's really nothing to learn from this. It's like, there's just a strange story that the Bible has. Right. The second, or I think I'll say first, because these three are people that are actually going to interact with the text itself, is what I'll call the poetic interpretation. Meaning, there is a general truth being revealed here that God made the world, but it is describing it in amazing, beautiful poetry. It's not intended to be taken literally. There's really nothing much deeper than what we have. It's just expressing what the Hebrews believed about creation when this was written. And Mm. it's very cool and it's very neatly structured, perhaps. And some people that (laughs) I've read, some folks that will say, why can't we just sit back and appreciate the beauty of this story without having to add all kinds of scientific, you know, nonsense into this, you know, completely ignoring the actual issue which is uh, because there's a whole lot of people that use this as a jumping off point to dismantle the faith. But mm. uh, this is a poetic poetic only, and that there's maybe God didn't even create the world. It doesn't matter. You've got a beautiful story, what somebody believes. And this uh, usually comes at it with from the documentary hypothesis point of view. The documentary hypothesis is what posits that there were four different authors or schools of authors that compiled what we now have as the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. That's also called like JEDP. The JEDP, which stands for the Yahwist, the Elohist, the Deuteronomistic, and the priestly uh, strains. Yeah, right. So um, believing that there's four different people that all edited and added their own thing to this. This was invented uh, by a guy... Uh, I wouldn't believe this was Wellhausen that came up with this, a German guy. It's basically been debunked scholarly-wise, right? Yeah, it's it's really fallen out of favor, except for those that are not really interested in, uh, (laughs) you know, asking tough questions. Sure. Um, But they believe that, okay, you've got the the Yahwist is uh, when you have the, I believe that's Genesis 1, is the Yahwist, right? That the the Lord created the world and it's, it's the the Yahweh writer. And then there's the Elohist writer, the guy that talks about, no, excuse me, it's the other way around, that the Elohist was Genesis 1, meaning this is a general, Elohim means God in Hebrew. This was just a general that God, or maybe even the gods made the world. Mm. And then later on, the Yahwist, meaning people that actually believed in Jehovah God, they wrote their version. And then when the final edit came together, they just stitched the two together. And that Genesis 1 and 2 are actually in conflict with each other. Which this is not. I've heard this. Yeah, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but there is no conflict to these two stories. Right, they're complementary to one another. It's like any lots of good movies have. Let's you know show what's happening in the big world, and then we'll zoom in and maybe even back up a little bit and show you what's happening in this individual life. And so, like you said, this has fallen out of favor because I think scholars have kind of started asking the hard questions of like, right, but where is the evidence? Is it, this is a very cool story that makes sense if you've spent your life poring over these documents without any intention to let them get in your heart. 
I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just being honest. But do, do, is there evidence that this process happened? And increasingly, we're realizing there there is not no, evidence. No, for there's that. not. And that's been yeah. what's given to the rise of biblical theology, and also right. it's called canonical theology. Um, Brevard Childs and other writers got into this, and there. We're not going to be with them on everything, but one of the points that they make that is well taken, they say, look, you can posit that there were four writers of the Pentateuch or three Isaiahs or whatever it is. We don't have any other copies of these books. We have a single book called Genesis, and it looks like this. You have to wrestle with that, that you just made it up. You can use the term hypothesize or posit or yeah. redactional theory all you want. It just means I'm making this up. We I it's not, up it's this not like we go out and there's multiple different copies of Genesis, some of which only have you know, a couple of verses of chapter one and others of which have other things. And, and we don't have that. that we don't have no, that. It does not exist. Evidence, There's correct. many people will, uh, like it's definitely even from the new Testament where there are varied manuscripts that we have. And we've talked about sorting mm-hmm. through that evidence in our textual criticism episode, but you don't even have that for Genesis right. or, you know, the entire old Testament for that exactly. matter. You know, I think Jeremiah might be the lone exception to that where there is a short and a long version of Jeremiah, but, um, even that is not that big a deal. That's why you probably never heard of it before. Uh, <laughs> right. But uh, getting back to this, this poetic interpretation, one of the, the points this view has in its favor is that there are other passages in the Old Testament that describe creation differently, meaning in poetic language. So I'll read you one. Uh, I'll read this from Job. Job chapter 26, verse 12 and 13. It says, by his, the Lord, by his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahav. By his wind, the heavens were made fair, and his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Now, what the author of Job is doing here is he's describing creation when it says, you know, the waters were turbulent and the Lord brought creation out of the waters, that God is the one that stilled the sea and he killed the serpent, Rahav. It's, it's, it's similar to Leviathan. It's a cultural, uh, mythological figure, really. He says, our right. God is the one that killed the great sea serpent. And that's, you know, comparing creation, the act of creation to slaying a giant monster. Very poetic, very cool, very fun. It'll preach, I'll tell you what. Uh, But I don't think that that is supposed to come back and completely overhaul the way we interpret Genesis 1 and 2. I I think a good principle of biblical exegesis and theology is that the major passage on something needs to speak first. So, for example... Do you have to be baptized to be saved? There are a couple verses that might seem to indicate that. But when you look at the major passage on how one is saved, like Romans, for example, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. That reminds us that there is a secondary or tertiary role to baptism because what does the major passage say? I think Genesis 1 and 2 obviously is the major passage in the Bible on creation. And there are other passages that will use all manner of poetic figures to describe what God did. Uh, that is not, does those passages which are obviously poetic do not change the way we read these first passages, which are not poetic. They're not written in poetic verse. We know what Hebrew poetry looks like. And it, it wasn't written that way. That's, so yeah, sorry. I just I just yes. wanted to pause and ask maybe the the dumb question here, because Tyler, I know in this area you've spent a lot more time reading than I have. When you read, you can make try and say whatever you want about these other passages, but Genesis is not maybe let's say is not entirely poetic material. If you're no, just looking not. at it from a genre perspective, meaning what are the different genres of the Bible? We talked about this in the canon section. This is not a scary thing. This is just real. Like, you know, some of the Bible is written as history. Some of it is written as as a, a narrative of what one person did. Some of it is written as poetry or, or you know, the different... We've talked about that. 
when you read Genesis, technically, as a scholar, you're not seeing wall-to-wall poetic no, sections. No, it's not. It's just simply not. Right. It's a narrative. It's a yeah. narrative. And you know this because it's not in poetic verse in your Bible, although some translations have written it in poetic verse. That's not how the Hebrew is written. Right. Uh, Hebrew poetry, as many of you know, is repetitive. It's parallelism. It's, there are hallmarks uh, that are easy to see. Yes. It's go re- uh, Go look at Proverbs There's, or look at you yeah, know, the, the way Psalms. When it says, or, yeah. um, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Right. Those are two sentences that are basically the same thing, but they say something different. Right. Very similar to how uh, Japanese haiku has very specific rules that you follow. Mm-hmm. Similarly, Hebrew poetry has its own specific style and rules, and Genesis 1 and 2 are, are not written that way. And even if they weren't, even if they were, I still don't know that that affirms that you would have to interpret it as not being true because the Bible reveals lots of things poetically that are still true. So mm-hmm. I think the presupposition for this one is science first with a capital S. Well, this is one that yeah, comes definitely. in and says, yeah. I don't believe this has anything to teach us about actual creation. It's amazing to me that how common that statement is. Mm-hmm. I don't think Genesis has anything to teach us about creation or science or origins. It's just giving us a beautiful picture about the fact that God made everything. And I don't think you would ever arrive to that conclusion if you were not already steeped in this thought of evolution and billions of years and an ancient earth and Big Bang and all of that, which tells me that's not good Bible study. You're well, bringing your own ideas to we the text. Can, we can, here, let's check that theory. Going back, looking scripture, looking, uh, sorry, not scripture, looking, and we don't talk about this very often on our podcast just because of what we, how we focus on, we believe that biblical theology is the way to do things, right? But let's just take a step back for a moment and look at traditionally, let's say, how have believers throughout time interpreted this passage? And if that changed, when did it stop? And spoiler alert, it stopped sometime in the 1860s right around when origin of the species was written fancy that so so actually the, the, hey, let me let me add something to that and then let you continue that uh, there actually were some early church writers in the greco-roman times that had similar iffy interpretations of genesis 1 and 2 because there was a very strong platonic belief uh, that that's, that's the actually world had point. evolved yes, but it was right, doing right. the same thing right. it was the bringing their we're, interpretation we're to the text we're eisegetically Yep. interpreting the text. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is there has always been a main, there has been a way to interpret this that has been consistent. Not, not you, you know, there's always differences of opinion within the church, but there has consistently been from the beginning, a way of interpreting this that said, well, it says this, so we're going to interpret it that way. And as culturally there's pressures to not say that there has been differences of opinion, but they've always come, like you said, from outside. Well, the Platonic scholars say that, you know, this is how the world was originated. So we need to find a place for that in Genesis or, you know, well, science now says beginning in the 1800s. And that's where you start to see the initial introduction of things like higher criticism and form criticism, all all those things that now we see the effects of those started, guys. And this is, you know, (laughs) you know, that meme online touch, you know, don't make me touch the sign right where it's like from The Simpsons. We're going to do that a lot in this and our sign is going to be. Ken Ham was right <laughs> because, and because, you know, Ken Ham, who we should be, I believe we should be thankful for his influence as the evangelical church today. Ken Ham pointed out to us that this, this process began when the church began to question Genesis and spawned things like higher theological criticism, you know, secularization of the way that we studied scripture that began in many, many cases from well, if Darwin is correct, we need to change how we read this. Yeah. Eisegetically, yeah. not exegetically. And Ken Ham would always talk about, he would put up a big chart with eisegesis does this and exegesis does this, explaining the difference. Um, so yeah, Tyler, I 100% agree. It, it, 
You get here by deciding that you're going to accept a scientific presupposition and then trying to find that presupposition in the text or yeah. ignoring the parts of the text that don't fit that presupposition. So yeah. do, do, do you want to move on to like the symbolic yeah, we, we are, and we're going to take a whole whole podcast to talk about mm-hmm. the theological fallout of um, yeah. of all this stuff. For but, sure. Uh, this, that's, so that's poetic interpretation. Honestly, you're not going to interact with that one so much, I don't think. Uh, it's very hard to have a conversation with that kind of person. The it's next more one fluffy, I, honestly. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of like this is just like, hand waves. This is kind of like maybe the high church pastor that just doesn't want to address it. It's mm-hmm. like, how beautiful is this language, you know? But right. And it is beautiful languages. Don't get me wrong here. But then the next one is this: what I'll call the symbolic interpretation. This is certainly gained favor, goodness, 10, 15 years recently. Is is really has sprouted it's on up fire right now. Um, yeah, it is. And what this is, this is um, when I was in seminary, when I was in Bible college. I'll back it up. This was the the thing that was being pushed that. The church needed to start examining the Old Testament in light of the ancient Near Eastern culture. There have been a lot of very interesting discoveries that had been made. Uh, they had rediscovered the Ugaritic language. They had, uh, mm-hmm. they were really finally starting to reap the benefits of what they found at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the discovery of the Enuma Elish, all these other things. And people were saying, we've got to get back and you know study Akkadian and study these other... Li-. And that was kind of the big push. And there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible was written in an ancient Near Eastern culture. So we should read it that way. Right. But what that has given rise to is people using the ancient Near Eastern culture as like a secret code uh-huh. to say that's why the Bible doesn't mean what it says. Yes. So this person will come to the book of Genesis and they will say that the way the Bible describes creation is similar in many ways to how other ancient Near Eastern cultures described creation. It's really not that close, though. When you uh, just I'm already deviating from my explanation here. But (laughs) when you look at some of these things, it's like they killed a giant monster and the blood of the monster fell to the ground. And then that blood became humanity. Meanwhile, God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's, it's similar there, in it's very, maybe like five core abstract, abstract things. What do you mean abstract things? It's the, the, There's some, a flood. Yeah. There was some nothing. Some divine being made the world. Okay, that's a yeah, – okay, the, sure. The state of the world before creation right. was watery is right. a very similar but, one. And, and also, Tyler, it's a good thing to point out that, that, again, here, what are we starting with? Our starting point is ancient Near Eastern culture. And we're using that to read back into scripture. Whereas we would, I know we're breaking this down too early, but we would say, well, hang on a second. We start from scripture. And then if we see similarities in ancient Near Eastern culture, we say, isn't it interesting that even though these people didn't have the truth of revelation, they were still trying to retell the same story because they had experienced it and it had been handed down. Yeah, I believe that's a point that Jason Lyle makes a lot, um, yeah. who is a Christian scientist, creation scientist, excuse me. Um, there's also a, a, uh, a, cult Christian sect called Christian science. And that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> Correct. Um, but uh, where was I talking about? Uh, yeah. Jason Lyle. He said that the reason we see all of these other legends in other cultures that seem very similar to the Bible, not just ancient near Eastern cultures uh, is because they're, they are preserving in some corrupted form, the memory of what really happened. And I would say that I have no problem believing that. And, and there are those that are really good on this subject and they'll say it's great to read the Bible in its own cultural time and to, to realize the idiom that they were using and the figures of speech that were common to them and even some of the, the names of the gods and so forth. But what they'll say is, but just because there's similarities and I'll agree with them does not mean that the Bible is just one among many 
or that the Bible is necessarily wrong, which is where some people go. So all, right. it, it could very well have been included for apologetics reasons. It was included and used their turn of phrase in order to show them that you're wrong about this. My favorite example, there was a, a Canaanite god named Mote, who was the god of death, uh-huh. he was the great swallower. And his description is that his lips went from the top of the heavens to the bottom of hell, and he swallowed everything. And that sounds like a very mythological way to describe death, right? It comes for everybody. Right. But there's passages in Isaiah where the Bible says that God will swallow death up in victory. Now we hear that and we say, cool. They hear that and they go, oh man, you got burned. <laughs> like that right, was right, coming right, right. at you, shots fired. Now it's useful you're gonna get to swallowed. use the culture because yes. you're exegeting well. You're saying, hey, this is what this says. How can this culture inform and help me understand what this meant to the people who heard it. Now, it's very. if you hear me being very specific, there's a very specific process you have to do. What's the wrong way of doing it would be saying, let's start from, oh, mode exists, so that's what this is talking about. Well, hang on. <laughs> or rather to say, we know moat didn't exist, therefore, how can we even be sure that Jehovah God existed? That's the secular way of looking at it. The way a Christian, unfortunately, will often look at this is they'll say, all right, this is very similar in many ways to ancient Near Eastern culture. It also was written in a culture that we are no longer living in. Fair enough. But then you'll see they will start to take the emphases of these other writings and documents and start to reinterpret scripture that way, which is dangerous because the Bible is making it abundantly clear that it is being written in contradistinction to these other cultures, that you will not be like them or think like them. A great example of this. And, uh, I think there is limited value to this this theme, but all the other cultures of this time, uh, it is said, I have my own suspicions about this, which I'll get to in a minute, that the whole world was defined between order and chaos, and that it was the gods were the ones that bring order out of chaos. And this is partly where Jordan Peterson has picked up his, his theme of Genesis, because he pulls it from these same sources. Mm-hmm. But if you read your Bible, you'll know that that's in there, but that is not the main drive of the Bible. And the reason we know that is because the church has been studying the Bible for thousands of years and right. we never got to that <laughs> until we looked <laughs> right. at the we looked at AE culture and said, oh, this was kind of a big thing for them. We realized, oh, you know what, some of that's in here too. Mm-hmm. But to completely take this handful of documents we have from other cultures and use that to reinterpret ones with which we are so familiar, know so much more about, I believe is a mistake. And yeah. what this ends up saying is, well, we know what science says about creation. We also know what the Bible says about gen- about creation is is has some similarities to the way the A and E culture did. Therefore, we're really not looking to get any kind of scientific information from the Bible. And this is where you hear the very the Bible is not written as a science textbook. It's not written, to, and those are often often very veiled uh, accusations against Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis. And they'll call the Creation Museum a Christian theme park. Usually, it's, not even veiled. Yeah, and they'll just say and. <laughs> That's that's where it goes. Is all right because of this A and E culture, you can't read it the way that it's written. To which I would, my first response would be, God gave us a book. Read the book. What does the book say? Yes, that other context matters. But if your context is going to cause you to say the text doesn't mean what it says, mm-hmm. then we have a problem. Not yeah. only that, yes, but yes, you yes. have. Uh, you have an entire Old Testament, which spans hundreds of years, thousands of years, perhaps, and getting into the New Testament as well. And you have all kinds of Hebrew tradition and, and that. And now all of a sudden you're discovering this and completely saying that everybody for thousands of years has been wrong. I just have a hard time with that. Here's how this mostly comes about. This has been pushed forth by guys like Vern Poitras and G.K. Beale, who are great. I, I love these guys. But they are the ones that are 
I think trying to be the most accommodating to this stuff and still hold on to the truth of scripture. There are others who I think are a little fast and loose with it. What they'll say is if you read your Bible very carefully, if you read Genesis carefully, you'll see that it is describing creation. uh, Oh, let's back it up. They'll, They'll say, if you look at the tabernacle, the way the tabernacle was built, the tabernacle is built to compare in many ways to the way that God created the world. That you've got the the firmament, like the veil of the temple, and you've got the you know the waters below where they would wash you know before they went to the the bronze laver, and you have God in the heavens, and you have the lights that are in the in the middle tier, right? And and that's that's very consistent with what we know of other temples and tabernacles that were built at this time. Although I would hasten to add, the Bible says that the tabernacle was made according to the template of what God has in heaven, mm-hmm. not according to what the world has. But I don't have a problem with it, really. I say, okay, so since the tabernacle was built in order to reflect creation, these people then read back into the Genesis story, and they say, the Genesis story is not trying to reveal to us how the world came about. They're trying to describe the creation of God's great tabernacle, that the earth is God's tabernacle and heaven is where he dwells, which is true. But they'll say, that's all you get from this is you get symbolism of God's relationship to the world. You're not getting any legitimate, real propositional information. And they'll spend a lot of great time preaching about how the world is God's throne room and how we're cast out of of God's presence, but we can get back in by the blood of the lamb, which is all great and wonderful and true. And it is a legitimate theme, but they're taking that and completely removing any sense of propositional real truth from the early books of chapters of Genesis, which I think is is dangerous. And I don't think it's good Bible study. I don't think you'd ever get there once again, if you did not already have a scientific reason to go there. It's certainly not good Bible study. And and I think we've, this is why I remember I made such a point of, you've, this is a theological issue and you've got to start theologically. Your theological assumptions about how, literally down to how do you do theology? How do you read scripture? You're one degree off. And by the time you're, you know, but you're shooting a rocket off now. And so one degree difference makes a big difference. And it may sound like we're being picky, but we're not because by the time we actually get down to, these are interpretive methods. By the time we actually start looking at the text, your interpretive layer is going to totally change what you're looking for and what the conclusions you're making. So yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, I don't, again, you have you come out, across that, that thing that, what now that Genesis is just, it's teaching about God, God's place in the world. It's not really teaching us any, it's not teaching us a scientific lesson. It's just teaching us like spiritual. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Oh, certainly. You, this you is, come across that a lot. this is, this is the position that's held by a lot of more liberal theologically, believers. It's also the position that's held by a lot of unbelievers who like to wax eloquent on the Old Testament. Um, Jordan Peterson, uh, Jonathan Pajot, I think, who I don't, do not believe, claims to be a believer, but talks about the Bible a lot. Correct me if I'm wrong. Apologize. Um, a lot of these people that are now very popular in right-wing circles who will just, dis- oh, the Bible's great and there's there's cultural benefit that we need to reclaim for the West, right? But what when you, get, when you pin them down on, do you believe this? They'll begin to say, well, you know, Genesis talks about the great struggle between order and chaos. And immediately this, this symbolic language comes Which out. Which is Taoism. It's not Christianity. Sure. So, I mean. <laughs> so this symbolic language will come out and you'll say, well, hang on a second. I'm not, the symbols might be fine, but if the symbol, like we talk about with Revelation, what are the symbols based on? Though? Right. That, that's the, <laughs> that's the whole thing I'm trying to make here is it's not that describing the tabernacle as similar to creation or vice versa is wrong. But there's something you need to remember. You never make theology out of preaching points. Like you never, you never want to say, for example, God will never let you be sick 
because God is, a, is you're the bride of Christ and God's not a wife beater. Like that's a, <laughs> that's a preaching point. That's not biblical right, s- right. study. That's, that's not theology. And these are people that say a very common thing is like, you're missing the point of this passage because you're trying to get, you know, fundamentalist points out of this. And to which I would say, well, what is it saying? It's saying in the beginning, God created and he said this and this happened. He said this and this happened. Either that did or it didn't. That's a proposition. And you say, well, God, that that's all just symbolic. It's like you, that the burden of proof is 100% upon you to prove that. And I would say that you cannot just say because the tabernacle bears similarities, for example, to creation, you can therefore say when it talks about creation, it doesn't mean anything. Just because you can get a certain meaning out of it or an application or an interpretation doesn't mean that that is the purpose of why it was written. Right. And the reason we have to be so careful about this, you guys, is that there's such a slippery slope that is being followed right now in this whole this whole world That's that want to look at the ancient Near Eastern culture and completely re- reinterpret and dismantle what we believed about the Bible for a very long time. There's a guy named John Walton who has written some things that I very much benefited from and enjoyed, but sure. he's kind of made this his hobby horse from Wheaton, and, and Wheaton College has uh, undergone quite a bit of changes in the recent years, which are disappointing to to me. But uh, many he's, such cases. I'm so sure. he's put out a book called "The Lost World of Genesis One," and he makes the this very point that you know you he'll say you can believe whatever you want about creation, you just can't use Genesis to get you there because it's not telling us anything. It's just trying to tell us that God is the ruler of all. And then he wrote another one, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. And now you don't have to believe in Adam and Eve literally as long as you get the point. And the flood, same thing. He wrote one on the Torah, he wrote one on miracles, he wrote one on angels and demons, making the point that angels and demons aren't real. They're just there to get the point. And you know, or at the very least you can't use the Bible to make a statement about demons, but, but it's all <laughs> amounting to the same thing, which is the Bible doesn't mean what it says. Yeah. And the arrogance of that is so wild to me that says, this is what the Bible says. It said it for stupid people that couldn't know the truth. But now that we're living in this scientific age where we've so apparently proven all these things, then, you know, you, you don't have to believe this stuff anymore. Well, not only is it arrogant, Tyler, but like, and again, you know, gosh, I, sometimes you just got to zoom out a little bit to the, have we talked yet about the, how the, well, I, I'm not going to bog us down in that. The pastoral versus theological thing is we, we don't we don't have time. <laughs> I'll say the short version is I think theologians and Christian scholars need pastors to curb their excesses. You're not above the church if that's, you're a theologian. That's fair. You need a pastor and, and I think to the struggle live I, in the real world and pull you back from the edge. The struggle you know? I have here is like that. That may sound great when you're when you're writing very long papers about it, but but at the level of the practice of the Christian faith, if this is real and you're asking people to believe it. You are also now going to tell them, but by the way, God essentially lied to you about some really big parts of this. Why would I trust the Lord? And, and again, welcome, you're tapping the sign. <laughs> Ken Ham pointed this out. Why would you tell your children when you send them off to, to school, God lied for 11 chapters, but trust everything else in the Bible? Where's the blinking red sign that tells me where God stopped fibbing? Well, you're slowly, that's a very, you're slowly you know, that's ra- ripping out all the supernatural parts of the Bible. Yes, where do you stop? And and it doesn't stop. And I'm not accusing John Walton of this, but that kind of thing is what, you know, and Wheaton has also put out a, a um, another book uh, talking about prophecy very similarly. It's like, it's not giving us any specific details. You're just supposed to get the gist. It's kind of like the gist. I've called this limited, limited interpretation before that you can get the gist, but don't get any details out of it. But what's to prevent somebody from jumping in and saying the same thing about the incarnation or the virgin birth or the resurrection? That's not a, that's not a hypothetical And what question. people will do is they'll say, well, look, that that's 
we know that to be sure that's the fundamental truth of the faith and it is but that's an arbitrary distinction but, and, that, and by the way that's so you're just making that distinction and many people say that this is because the new testament we know much more about it and and so on is what they'll say and that, but and that's not I, a hypothetical, I don't i don't think it's a good that's, answer that's not a hypothetical question tyler that slippery slope has been walked and, and i want to i guess i want to gently say this maybe to our older you know our fathers and grandfathers in the faith the reason that the deconstruction era hit the church like a bomb is a lot of young people asked, where is the sign that tells me when I can begin trusting the Bible? Yeah, And they were not wrong. They were not wrong to ask that. I, I would share, you know, pastor, brother, sister, teacher, if you, if you are teaching scripture and you're implicitly letting people believe that there are parts of this that we don't have to take serious and other parts of this that we do, you should expect, you must have some sort of good answer for which parts those are and who gets to decide that. Yeah. Because your young people will deconstruct their faith around this. And and I don't even know if they I can... They will and have and do. And I don't even know if I can entirely blame them. Because I have spoken to people going through the throes of deconstruction. And one of the questions they ask me is, but I talked to this guy who told me that this doesn't make sense from a scientific point of view. And my pastor didn't have anything to say about it. He just hand waved and said, well, that part is okay. We don't have to worry about that. You just need to worry about the incarnation. Why would they believe one? One miracle and disbelieve another just on your say so we've even seen this more publicly i can't remember if i shared this last time but uh william lane craig who i has is great on the existence of god but he he said recently in a, in a book that he wrote that if uh if it can be proven one thousand percent that the bible insists upon a historical adam then i would have to question the existence or the inerrancy of scripture that, he just tells you right there where his commitment is, is there are things that we know, and if the Bible disagrees with them, then I guess the Bible's wrong. Do you not understand how dangerous that is? And here's the other accusation that we get before we move on from this symbolic interpretation thing here, um, is folks will say, you are reading it with cultural arrogance. You are coming at it with your 21st century scientific worldview and trying to read the Bible that way. That's just your same Western oppression, colonial, blah, 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 blah. You got to read it in its own culture and read it the way it was written and not the way you, you want to read it. Okay, that might be fair enough. But do you not see that these people are doing the exact same thing that they're accusing you of doing? You're, the the yeah. postmodern worldview says yep. that... The text doesn't matter, only context. And that is exactly what this whole mission is about, is, well, as long as you understand what they, we know what they were trying to say. And so, therefore, what they say doesn't matter. And we can disagree with them. Mm. That, and that's, mm. that is postmodern thought. And that's why you get, I mean, I'm not, again, I don't like lumping all these people in the same category, but they're drinking from the same well here. Yeah. This is why if you've got, you know, a really crazy neighbor or something who said, you say something, they say, that's racist. Like, what are you talking about? I didn't say, that's not what I said. And they say, I don't know, care what you said. I know what you meant. And you've heard all this before, right? That, you know, speech is violence and all that. That comes from the idea that what you say doesn't matter because I know the context in which you said it. Therefore, I'm able to take what you said, deconstruct it, find out what you really meant, and then read my opinions into it. Mm. That's exactly what these, they're handling the Bible in a postmodern manner while masquerading as handling it in, a, in an ancient Near Eastern matter. Because yes. the thing is, the ancient Near Easterns believed this stuff. Right. Oh, that's correct. You don't. You're you're coming in and saying it's it's a form of accommodationism, which some of these people will violently disagree with, but they're wrong. We're not accommodationists, which is the belief that God deliberately said untrue things in order to speak to the culture. Like Jesus, for example, mm. knew there was no such thing as a demon, but he pretended to cast them out. 
because that was the only way they would accept him healing their mental health issues, uh, which I absolutely reject, that the Lord is going to send lies, which is what they are. If you say God created the world in six days and he didn't, that's an untruth. Okay. Well, the yeah. symbol is true, but that's not, the Bible has symbols and it's very clear when they are symbols. So once again, this is the symbolic interpretation that the Bible is, is t- making a symbolic point, but not a, a scientific one. But again, the presupposition there is we know what the science says. Therefore, we're going to come to the Bible and something that would have been a minor issue before is going to be made into a major issue to help us accommodate science and the Bible, even though I don't think it, it really works. So that's that's a big thing you guys got to watch out for. And the, the third place we end up. So we had poetic interpretation, which is like, you know, kind of just dig the heaviness, man. You know, the symbolic interpretation, which is a little better, but is is really working overtime to erode the... The, what the creationists gained in the 90s and 2000s. But <laughs> what we have here is number three, the literal interpretation. All right, let's go. <laughs> this is, we believe that Genesis is describing real history. And when it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light, that that is precisely what happened. Mm. There is no, I don't see any reason. Well, there are scientific reasons, but textually, there is no textual reason why you cannot accept that to be true. And also, not only that, but this view allows us to accommodate the other advantages, so to speak, of the other views. The poetic view says, hey, man, it's just a beautiful description of who God is. It is that. I don't have to believe it is only that in order to appreciate it. And I can believe all kinds of symbols and I can believe all sorts of amazing depth and layers to the creation story while still believing that that is what really happened. So we believe that when God created the world in says in seven days, that's exactly what he did. And the order in which he said it happened, that Adam and Eve were real people, the Garden of Eden was a real place, there was a real serpent, a real fruit, right. and they were really kicked out of a real garden. Right. That That's what we believe. It, when the Bible says it, we believe it. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm having trouble adding anything to that because I, I definitely went through, I'll just be honest, after, after really mainlining this in study as a younger believer, I definitely went through a spell where I became, I think we talked about this in the first podcast, I became a little bit embarrassed, shall we say, of the amount of, you know, humility that's needed to just say, yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) I know that you think that that's foolish, but this is what I believe. I've definitely come back, praise the Lord. I think, I don't think that was good of me. I've definitely come back around again to recognizing that, you know, if you don't have a theological reason to disbelieve this, you need to stand on it. And by the way, like we just shared, if you do have a theological reason to disbelieve this, I'm not sure where that process stops in scripture. So I am definitely, I, I've, I've kind of jokingly started labeling myself like a, a, a maximalist here now of like, look, I am all in on this. And, and, and not only that, but praise the Lord, we are now living in the best possible period, let's just say, to be. A, a, a young earth creation literalist reader of Genesis, because now we, we more and more frequently see, like we talked about in the first podcast, it's apparent that the, some of the writing that's been, you know, so confidently done on this was done from a very biased perspective. Yeah. And so I've gotten to this point where I'm now like pretty brazen about this and saying like, not only do I think this is important, I think that this is where you should stand. And I, I honestly think that it's not even a lot of the times the objections that are brought up end up being essentially intellectual bullying. They're not actually engaging with the no. text in a fair way and saying, and, well, and a lot of these creation or, uh, you know, some of the inter- interpretations I've just given a lot of the, the writings from these guys, they read like somebody capitulating to a bully. 
and just giving in. It's like, you know, they'll finally just leave us alone if you just give them what they want. Right. And which they won't. And and also they also like, let's be honest, you know, you might not agree with me, but let's both go read a person. I hate to pick on Jordan Peterson, but let's just be honest. He's publicly put himself in for it. If you set yourself up as an authority on why we should all disbelieve a section of scripture and then demonstrate publicly that you cannot exegete, that's important. Well, he right? doesn't, he the, doesn't believe exegesis is necessary. He's reading okay. it well. There you go. Logically, but but not, you know what I'm saying is yeah. like the the the, the, pe- the kind of people who begin to commit to this way of reading scripture are the people that demonstrate then in the way that they read scripture, vagueness, hand waving, lack of rigor, lack of arguing seriously, and I think that matters. The, yeah. To me, it is not only possible, but it's been done over and over that you are able to come to this conclusion carefully wisely both with your spiritual lenses on tight and 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 you know through the inspiration of the holy spirit but also intellectually you don't have to compromise either of those to get here and i would argue that to get to some of these other places you do have to let go of some things that i'm simply not willing to let go of yeah and and very often the the thing that is said is well if we don't learn to accommodate evolution then people are going to continue to leave the faith uh no i think first of all those people fail to realize that it's not a lack of accommodation of evolution. It's you cannot believe both at the same time. That's the world saying that. That's not us saying that. But secondly, it's if somebody comes to the the Bible, to the gospel, shall I say. Somebody comes to the gospel and says, there is something I will refuse to disbelieve. Then, then Jesus says that you're outside the faith. Jesus demands all of you. You should be coming. Your attitude needs to be. I don't care if the Bible teaches that the world is a cream puff. <laughs> I'm going to believe it because that's what God has said. And you say, well, that's just not intellectually honest. What did Jesus say? He said, you must become like a little child. If you come to God with conditions, keep walking, Jesus said. You, you can't be my disciple if you're not willing to despise and hate all these other things. So I refuse to accommodate for the attitude that says, well, I don't know if I can believe Jesus if this is part of the deal. Like, then goodbye. You know, and it's not that somebody can be an can't be an evolutionist and be saved. It's the attitude that says, "I will either I'm standing on this no matter what." Uh, let's see what you got to say with the other thing. So, uh, and uh, just a couple other things before we move on to another section here. But why do we believe little interpretation? One other thing I'll mention is that uh, the Bible builds doctrine off of this. The Sabbath doctrine is built off of the seven days. Uh, the whole doctrine of sin that. Adam sinned and pass it on to us. Marriage is built off of these early chapters. Jesus quotes this book. Yeah, the sovereignty of God yeah. as, as the creator, the one who made all things. And not it's, starting in chapter 12. No. I mean, Jesus, no, no, Jesus no. quotes this book. He refers to this saying, you should know because, and then points back to Genesis. And and not only that, as as again, Ken Ham has, has been pounding the table on for years, are... And maybe we'll talk about this in detail in the in the theological implications episode. But the, like you said, yeah, Tyler, major doctrines hang on scientific questions here, not just sure. symbolic, symbolog, whatever questions of symbolism. Um, ma- major <laughs> major uh, doctrinal issues hang on, you know, where you believe in in the fossil records. Certain things happen that those change how you interpret anthropology and harmartiology you know the questions of man and sin like anyway i don't want to get ahead of ourselves short suffice it to say this isn't something that you can just hand wave no i don't think i and and, and be honest and I, the, I don't the answer it. people will give is well jesus is making a reference to the lesson that's taught by genesis not but the actual thing well but then the question becomes if jesus knew it wasn't true then 
you know, I, and this is the thing. Yeah, I'll leave, but I'll, this, but I'll yeah. even say to that, like, if you say, okay, but th- this is, if you believe that this is a myth, well, then it's the myth that God gave you. And you're obligated to believe and live as if it's true. And I, I don't understand how you keep getting back to that. I don't believe that it's a myth. I believe that it's truth, and I believe it's history. But uh, we need to have some humility before God's word. So let's move past. Those are the interpretive methods of Genesis here. We have the poetic interpretation, the symbolic interpretation, and where we stand the literal interpretation. Now I want to get to uh, just kind of run through a rather short list here of uh, the various options of what of how folks handle uh, the these two things here. And there is a one of my least favorite words because it's so overused and it's so postmodern, a spectrum here of these <laughs> things from one end to the other. Uh, the first option is, is and e- each one of these will take, you know, from one of the various interpretations, kind of like a, you know, like a, what's, what do you call those things? Golden corral, a buffet. <laughs> a gold, that's, gold, that tells a you. A golden corral of <laughs> A golden corral of evolution and creation. Uh, but th- these are where the in- interpretations end up landing. The first one is what mm. we'll call scientism, which is the belief that there is no God that created the world. The world is the way it is. Right. Some people, I mean, even want to believe that and still believe in God. I believe the world exists. I just don't believe God had anything to do with it, which is strange to me, but they're out there. So that's that's yeah. the more it's atheist view, certainly. Not even? I don't know. That yeah, not I, don't, even really. I think most of those folks probably have not thought too hard about trying to reconcile this. But That's fair. Or they're pantheists. Uh, then you have what we'll call, what we'll call, this is the term for it, theistic evolution. A theistic evolutionist is somebody who believes in God and believes in evolution exactly as it is stated in your average science textbook. And they say everything happened exactly the way our scientists, paleontologists, cosmologists have defined it, except it was God that made it happen. They'll, they'll just put God as the cause, which is a better step because they, they'll they say, I, I, I don't know if you'd put William Lane Craig in this category, keep picking on him, but I, he, I think you probably would, is that mm, I believe in right. everything science teaches, he, yeah. but I believe that none of this makes any sense without God, which is fair, right? I mean, sure. How did things happen? How did the world just pop into existence and then things just start happening? You need a deity, you need God. But this is a person who's not going to think very highly of Genesis, except maybe from a devotional perspective. Uh, there are believers that, that lean this way, but oh, that's that's theistic evolution. This is where you'd put most of to the intelligent design movement, which was a way bigger deal maybe five to ten years ago. But this was the initial stirrings of scientists, many of whom are not even saying. Who was that that one philosopher, that Jewish philosopher that was not a Christian, but was really arguing for uh, ID to have a seat at the table? I've probably got um, I don't, yeah, but while Tyler is looking at a book, this is great radio. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there we go. David Berlinski. He wrote a book called The Devil's Delusion. Uh-huh. And he's not a Christian. I don't even think he's a, a religious Jew, but uh, he is very much like, you know, evolution has about as many holes in it as Swiss cheese. Right. And here's these Christians and other theists that have other explanations, and they're just as rigorous as yours are. They deserve a seat at the table. And there, there were guys so He'd like probably that fall into this category during somewhere. During that period, there were guys like that. You know, Stephen C. Meyer and Michael Behe. And guys, well, Stephen C. Meyer is a progressive creationist. We'll talk about oh, that. Oh, I see. That so, so, and, there is a difference. In short, like people who would say, look, I, I, I don't even know that I believe in a God. I'm just saying this can't happen outside of an intelligent force. Right. Which I think is kind of what you would say for, for theistic evolution. Yeah, and, you, like and there are those. Something had to happen. There Somebody are those within this. the church under the... the the umbrella of the faith that believe that. I think they're wrong. I think it's bad teaching. Sure. I don't even say false teaching, but it's bad. C.S. Lewis. It's not heresy. C.S. Lewis believed theistic evolution. Sure. Or, and, and wrote about it. So, yeah. yeah. But let's move on. The next one is progressive creationism, which is a slight uptick. This is somebody who believes that uh, Stephen C. Meyer is a great example. He 
says, if you look at the fossil record, there are points where new species pop into existence that could not have come from the previous species. Therefore, he's one who believes that God created the world and would kind of let it go for a while. And then he would step in at specific points in order to jump it up to the next level. So for example, people ask questions, well, how did non-life become life? Well, he'd say, well, God stepped in and made that happen. Or how did, uh, you know, this organism become that? Well, God made that happen. And how did consciousness come about? Well, God did that. And so God was creating, but creating over millions and billions of years and bringing it all together. And that God had a much more active hand. Uh, a theistic evolutionist would be closer to a deist. They're not deists, but they're closer to that. A progressive creationist believes in an intervening God, but believe in more like a succession of creative acts. And once again, does not really think very highly in terms of facts of the, the Genesis story. Now, we were laughing about this, I think, even before the podcast. Tyler, explain to me how this makes God really fundamentally different from, like, the aliens from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, yeah, the black monolith. <laughs> right? Shows like, up th- this is God just uplifting. Here, God shows injects up. Injects us with another round of juice. Yeah, and now he uplifts step. chimps, and now we're this. And But, you know, so I this is where I have a major problem with this. Is like, well, but so explain to me at which point. You know, explain to me at which point in the cycle Australopithecus turns into Homo sapiens enough that he has a soul. And that's not that's not a nothing. That's very important. That's not a nothing question. Right. That's like, well, that's a big deal. Like at some point you're you're saying that something was not human and therefore does did not sin in a way that needs God's salvation. And at some point that thing became human. I, I, I well, they don't yeah, believe they, they questions, became right? human. They believe that God jumped in and and made it happen. Right, but but I mean, just still, it's how how is that different? I guess from just so God's like uplifting. It, it's so us strange out of the because monk. it's really, it, it's still definitely leaning onto the, uh, the the evolution side more. It's like science has a lot to offer, but yeah, uh, so. you know, we need God to fill in the gaps. I mean, this is the guy that has the actual God of the gaps. I believe J.P. Moreland is one of these. Uh, also who who believes in this. And a lot of these guys that are progressive creationists or theistic evolutionists, they don't hold very strong opinions on these things. They just kind of say, like, this is what the world says, and I believe that I the Bible can accommodate it. it's placeholder opinion. Like, here, yeah, uh, perhaps. What I, you know. Um, but, you know, that's a progressive creationism. So, um, now they're, they're, this next thing we're going to talk about, this is somebody who takes the, the book of Genesis as written. However, they'll say God did not describe everything that he did during these times. Uh, you've got, and there's, there's very various ways this can look. And the first so, one is the, like the day-age okay. theory. That one uh-huh, says, you uh-huh, know, uh-huh. on the first day, God created light. Well, that day was billions of years long. Sure. To which you have to say, all right, it says day, though. Like, it doesn't say that. It says day. Uh, that's the one version. You've also got, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Over millions of years, the world came about. Then God said, let there be light. And there so was light. That's like the classic gap theory, right? That's it's the basically classic Basically, the whole theory. gap gets fit in between, if you're keeping score at home, uh, verse one and two of Genesis, which I, you know, to me stretches credibility a bit, but I, yeah. that's, and, that's and what is argued. This is the person, what they'll say is what is being described is the universe from Earth's perspective. And I do not deny that. That's true. So what they say is, well, all these things became true of the earth, that it was formless and void. And then God said, all right, I'm going to make this one world a place to be. Mm. And then they'll put other gaps in there too. Mm. Like, and then there was another one and there's another one to accommodate the fossil record. It's better because you're at least taking the word of God seriously. Um, but that's, that's one way of looking at it. You've also got other various views here that 
posit entire other universes or other worlds that God made. And this was a very common view back in, in the 20th century that God created the world and it was formless and void. And they'll look at the Hebrew word for it was, and they'll say it is possible in certain contexts to read it became formless and void. And the reason that's that's kind of true because the Hebrew verbs can tend to be notoriously fluid, but that's not the best way to read it. But they'll say, now, God created the world and there were people living on it and there was animals and there's all the rest. And Satan rebelled during that time. And then mm. Satan and his, his hordes ravaged the world. God destroyed the world. It became formless and void. That was the first ice age that covered the world. And people will say that is what accommodates for the fossil layers. And then God created a second time, which is recreation, and made the world that we have now. now. And they'll say the difference is in the first universe, God just did judgment. This time around, God is showing grace. The problem is, yeah. Boy, are you reading an awful lot into sure, that? Sure, you and, are. And uh, there, I mean, even guys like Pastor Chuck got into this this theory. Some the the gap uh -huh. theory. I don't think he pushed it as far as I just described, but right, it, that is so for that's as that is as foreign to the text as you know evolution is. You're literally really kind of is. planting a big wedge in there and just trying to stuff a lot of stuff in. I I think now. Most Christians, the, well, I say most, a lot of Christians would be just fine with that if you were restricting it to the idea that perhaps in that place is where Satan was created and fell, right? There's some people that would argue that, I believe. Yeah, but, do you but have, that's about you, it. You're not given any timestamp of when that happened. Like, no, that's correct. Obviously happened I'm before saying, the fall, but other you, you, right. between creation and fall, like you've... Is a lot. That could be anywhere in there. Sure. And the in other idea words, you're, that argue, a, you're just arguing, you're trying to take the other passages that talk about Satan's fall from, help me out here. Like, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28. And you're saying they go there. I could maybe Revelation see that. 12. I could maybe get along with you on that. Although, like you said, there would be other places to put that. But to say that there's, you know, empires rising and falling and, and a whole, you know, that, that's a lot. Yeah, um, I, I can't get on board with that. But I mean... You know, I've I have fellowship with people that believed that, and oh, for sure. You know, yeah. I have. Uh -huh. There's been great, great men of God that have believed pretty much every version of this. Yes. So you know, we're speaking strongly because we've seen the cultural fallout of this stuff. But this, all these things are well and truly under the umbrella of Christianity. Yeah. But where you end up with is is finally you have creationism. Mm -hmm. Now you have Zach kind of nuanced this for me a little bit. You have those that are what they call old Earth creationists who believe that you you're not going to take Every uh, every genealogy and every record of time in the Bible is being comprehensive, and that the world could be older than you know Bishop Usher's six thousand years, for example. Um, fine, but once again, I I think you're you are depending upon something the text does not talk about. Yeah, my big and then, question there and then would young be why, earth creationism. why are you accommodating? But yeah, like yeah. so, an old earth person would say, well, again, it has to start with the presupposition. Well, because we know and. The fill in there is because scientists have argued based on starlight and time or radiocarbon dating or whatever that we know that the earth is billions of years old. So since we have to make that work, I'm going to concede that, but I won't concede anything else. To me, number one, there are very good reasons and we're going to try and even have some, hopefully Lord willing, some guests on here who will explain why there are very good reasons that you don't even have to concede that. But secondly, once you concede that. Where does it stop? Where where does that stop? Right, yeah. and and so I yeah I would be more of a certainly more of a young Earth creationist still to this day I think. Yeah. Uh, and now I don't have a problem with the idea that you know not every genealogy includes 
every year. Like there could be other things that happened in the meantime. Sure, but I guess to, that's fine. Yeah, I don't I mean, know I, that you can stretch that out to millions of years yeah, that were unaccounted more, for. More, that's more gaps you know, in I, genealogy. I, chief. I think like, you're, yeah, I think you are. Uh, I think you're certainly pushing it. And I, I certainly would find myself a young Earth creationist. Although if I get to heaven, I found out that you know, oh well, some of these. You know, there were other dates that the Bible didn't talk about. It's not going to break my heart, but I don't want to go beyond the text. I don't mind showing up to heaven and finding, being find out, being teased, shall we say, that I took it so seriously. I'll put it that way. So those are your interpretive methods, a poetic interpretation, symbolic interpretation, a literal interpretation, various options, you know, eating from the buffet of how to interpret your text, scientism, theistic evolution, progressive creation, gap theories of various kinds, and then creationism, young and old earth. And we certainly would fall under the young earth creationist camp, which is uh, officially pseudoscience, according to Wikipedia. So, Oh, cool. Yeah, there we go. So, Look at me. What a dissident I am. What other conspiracy <laughs> theories are you into, Zach? Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> we're not having this conversation. No, don't even We're not. Moving on. Uh, well, and, and that's... Oh, gosh, this, okay, hang on. Darn it. We will. This is what makes me upset, is that you, you by, by using a label... To just say, do you see what just happened in that, even even that little interaction? Even me, there's a little catch. I'm like, well, wait a second. Do, but literally all they have to do is use a label and say, this is pseudoscience. And through a process, which is essentially intellectual bullying, they put you on the back foot to now describe why they're wrong. They have not done any argumentation. I can label, look, here, I'll do it. I'll label evolution science for bad people, made by bad people. Well, cool. What have I proved? nothing i've not actually attacked the scientific questions at stake so even that makes me upset it's I, like you, you just label it a, as pseudoscience so that then you feel so that then you are putting yourself in the position of smart dude for believing what you believe yeah uh, the, cool. i remember like, seeing a, anybody can do that a uh i think it might have been like a web comic online where the the comment the dismissive comment was made is like do you realize that there are phd educated young earth creationists as in, like, can you believe such a thing? Never stopping, I would imagine, to consider people with PhDs believe this stuff. Maybe it's not quite as ridiculous as I originally yeah, thought yeah, yeah. it was. You know, uh -huh. it's. But anyway, um, what I want to do now is there is a Bible passage that addresses this about how to look at this, and I want to build up to it. Um, and I want to start by like, let's just walk through what Genesis describes. Uh, from creation, but also moving forward, and we're going to take it as far as the flood here. You could go past that, but um, it's it's really the reason I, I want to talk. About it, it's so strange, and I mean that in a good way. It's really like foreign to read what's being described here, and you know, many. It's a, actually kind of interesting that many cultures have what they call the age of legends, or like the time before the right now times. Most, like I that, would there say. Not things many, used yeah. to be different. And yes. I'd say that without conceding the truth of like you know the Greek gods or anything, for example, the Greek demon false gods, you might say, but that there is some biblical truth to that. So let's look at this. You start out with eternity past in the beginning, God, right? God existed in His eternal triune harmony for eternity past, prior to creation. And the world, it said God created the world and it was formless and void. So that is when it seems to pass from only God to now God and a world that is formless and void and chaotic. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. It's described as watery. And you don't know what that is. Like you you can't, 
that's the void. We talk about the void, and that sounds like something from Lord of the Rings. But it's, yeah, it's this is what the word has here. Uh, the chaos dimension, yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah. I mean, but that's all that there was. You yeah. had God, and you had everything else, and then you have the six days of creation. You're starting out with God saying, "Let there be light," right? And there's light, and you separate the light and the darkness, and you have day and you have night. Okay. The next thing is on day two, God's going to take a look at the waters. He's going to say, let there be an expanse or a separation between the waters. So we have waters above and waters below. And we'll return to that in a little bit. That's the second day. So now this big ball of water has space. There, there's this, a firmament is another way of describing it. Like there's something that is physically separating the upper waters and, and from the lower waters. And even the firmament, waters. by the way, is like... But I mean, we'll get to this in a little bit later. What is the, what's a firmament? Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll what's get to a firmament? That. So second day we have a watery world with light and darkness. Uh-huh. And now there, there is, there's space and there's a firmament holding it up. Sure. Then we say, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. Let dry land appear. So now we have earth. Now you've got a continent and you've got the seas and you've got the water above and the earth sprouted vegetation and plants. So now you've got a wild world, right? With, with the plants on it. And that's day three. Yeah, which, by the way, still probably just one continent, perfectly contained in this worldview is that that's just one continent that hasn't split apart Oh, yeah, yet. we should talk about Peleg sometime. We're not the there. Earth was divided like, so so still, we still don't understand, okay, just one big landmass? That's weird compared to, you know, yeah. moving on. <laughs> so then you got day four. He said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons, days and years. So sun, moon, and stars. Now, a very common accusation is like, you're telling me we have light without the sun? So we know that light comes from the sun. So how can you have light without the sun? I don't know why that is such a big deal for people. It specifically tells us that let there be the lights to separate the day from the night. Mm -hmm. The God is saying, right now we have day and night. I'm going to bind this light to these lamps in the sky that are going to help us measure seasons and times and days and years. There was a light source that was not planetary. Yes, there was light. There was just light. Where did it come from? Doesn't matter. It says there was light. And then he said, I'm going to bind this to the world Uh you have uh now. So it's kind of silly to say, well, it's only ever been this way when the Bible tells us that it wasn't. Okay. So then we have the fifth day where God says the waters are going to be filled with fish. The birds are going to fly over the expanse, right? So we've got birds and we got fishes. And then the next day, six, you have living creatures on the land, especially man made in God's image. And now you've got a finished world. And God looks at it and says it's good and rests on the seventh day. Now, we're going quickly here. You can read it on your own. You get into Genesis 2, and it describes that Adam and Eve were created together in the Garden of Eden. And this is a place where they were naked. They were not sinful. They were in their innocence. The animals were docile towards them, and they were eating fruit. They were exist. They were there to work and expand the garden to cover the, the whole domain of the world, to fill the earth and subdue it, God says. I've made this little garden place. I want you to take the rest of this world and make that into a garden according to your design. Pretty cool. Then there's this serpent, which Revelation 12 confirms for us is the devil himself. Somewhere in this story, the devil fell. Mm. And the devil comes in and tempts Eve to eat the one fruit they were not allowed to eat, which was the knowledge of good and evil. They eat the fruit. Sin comes into the world. God drives them out of the garden. Do you see how strange this story is? This is what I'm trying to tell you. This is yeah. weird. Uh-huh. This is a weird world. It's not like the one we have now. Then you have the post-garden world where they're living in the world. They're having interaction with God. They're speaking to the Lord. Which was happening they're, in the garden too, but and yes. he was physically present 
And now he's okay. Doesn't seem like he's physically present anymore. No, but they can come and talk to him. Which is we don't do that, right? So that's yeah. You have the story of the Nephilim, where you have <laughs> demons having uh-huh. sexual congress with women and giving birth to giants, which the Bible calls the heroes of all those mighty men that you hear about. Right. And that's that's the world. That is what the world is. You have this strange ecology where the Bible says that. Water came up from the ground and watered the earth with a mist. It was it was natural irrigation from these waters below that the Bible describes, and there was no rainfall on the earth. You had people that's not living. The way I, I, I've been through third grade science. That's not the way it works. That's right not the now. water cycle. No, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Magic school bus taught me <laughs> correct. Um, you have the people living to be almost a thousand years old. At this point, they're not eating meat at this time. Yeah, and it seems yeah. that there's a, there's more fellowship and interaction with humanity and animals than there was later. More on that in a minute. And that's even post, by the way, that's even post sin. Adam lives to what? Nine, nine, Adam lives for almost a thousand years. And some, and in, in, I think 969 is the record that we're it's told Methuselah. about. That we're told about, by the way. So just wrap your mind around that. Even after sin, people were living for almost a millennia, which is... I don't think I don't think we've ever completely it would take a whole podcast to think through what would that do to society if people could live that long. It's one of the right. reasons why God said he's got it. We're not doing this anymore. Yeah. And there also is this interaction with demons and angels. It seems to be a little more than what we have I, now. Yeah, I would say that is uh, an understatement. So what are what I'm trying to say here is that this was not like what it is now. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. It was a strange, different kind of world. Like you yes. read about the millennium when Jesus returns mm-hmm. and it's it's different. Big There's different. immortal <laughs> kings and queens yep. that have risen from the dead, ruling and reigning on the earth over the mortal men that are going to be judged with a rod of iron. Jesus the angels are present. being judged yeah, by yeah. us. Uh-huh, the world uh-huh. is being renewed mm-hmm. rather like entropy is reversing as there the Lord be is no on the earth. See whatever that. Well, that's well, that's well, in heaven. Sorry, that's, that's not the millennium. Yeah, second, Satan sorry. is bound. There's no more temptation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, there's differences in time period. Dispensations, you might say. Uh, <laughs> but what? So when did it start? When did it become normal? Well, something absolutely cataclysmic happened that changed all that, and that's the flood. Yeah, we've been talking about these waters. The world was just water, and then it was waters above and waters below. When the flood happened, and God put Noah on the ark, it says that the flood came up from the ground, that the fountains of the deep broke open. Now, these waters that had been beneath the earth watering it burst out from under the ground, and also the waters fell from heaven, that the firmament was broken and the waters collapsed onto the earth, and it flooded everything. What that did was it, first of all, the ecology of the earth has totally changed. You no longer have waters above and waters beneath. Violently changed. Yeah, you have the sea as we know it today. The ecology would have changed because there are those that have talked about how it would have been conditions where you could have had megafauna and megaflora, and you could have had people living to be that long. Which we scientifically know happened. We find find examples in the fossil record of why is this sloth Enormous this big cave like, bears why, and what, you know, beavers like, like yeah. all it seems from the and again isn't this fun it's almost like if you use if you start with scripture and then you say okay based on this what should i expect to find and then you go look in the world and dig a little bit you find those things this is exactly why we approach biblical archaeology the same way if you start yep. with scripture and say well there's a pilot somewhere I'm just going to sit around until we find Pontius Pilate. And then eventually you find evidence of that. If you start from Scripture and the say... Hittites, Jericho, Many such cases, things, right? If you start from Scripture and you say, well, it seems like at some point there was people living a really long time and, and creatures that creatures were different than now. I don't understand what that is. And then you go and find massive bears, you know, the size of... I mean, they're literally like... It's like elephant size. Yeah. They're huge. You say, oh, huh, this is that. 
Yeah. I can explain this evidence based on this starting point, and you can't. Yeah, and there are those, I'm no expert in this, but we're hoping to get, as, as Zach said, some experts on to talk about this with us, that if you had had a world like the Bible describes, and then you ripped all that away, and you get this kind of watery change, like it would have been totally different that this could have been what gave rise to the various ice ages, like that the world would have been frozen, like not like it was because it's recovering from this giant cataclysm yeah. that the, the continents would have begun to drift, which perhaps the tectonic plates and exist be broke apart because of what uh-huh. the Lord did during yes. the, the flood, right? That God says, I'm going to put the fear of man into the animals. That is your relationship to animals is going to change. You can eat them now and they're going to be afraid of you. We see that the ages of man drop precipitously until they reach that our, our normal levels. Mm-hmm. That God, God changed his world. Mm-hmm. He sent out this giant destructive force to change everything. Yeah. So Broke it almost literally. I so mean, you just like, yeah, to yeah. get into what we now call normal, mm-hmm. which is what's going to bring me here as we, we start to wind it up into second Peter chapter three. And I believe this is, This is a prophecy that was directly given to the church that is neglected by so many people. Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, verse 3. He says, knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Zach, what does a scoff sound like? There you go. (laughs) 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 The very idea. That's, That's scoffing. Okay. Following their own sinful desires. And what will these scoffers in the last days say? They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep... All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says in the last days, there will be people following their own lusts. And what they will say is Jesus is not real and is never coming back because everything has continued from the very beginning until right now. Exactly the same things don't change. Man, is that not exactly what you hear now? Shouldn't that like ring an alarm bell in your head? But Peter says in verse five, they deliberately overlook this fact. So it ever feels like people are willfully blind. People, Peter says they will deliberately overlook this fact. And the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed perished, was deluged with water and perished. What Peter is telling them, he says, there are going to be people that are not going to believe that God created the world and sent a flood. And that the flood, he continues in that passage, is to remind us that one day God is going to come and judge the world in fire. He's done it before. So this, the, the fundamental of every scientific theory that is put out there today is something called uniformitarianism. This is the belief that the way the world exists now is the way that it has always existed. That the laws That's, of physics yeah. exist now as they always have. Math works exactly as it always have. Planets formed just as they always have right now. That nothing has changed. The Bible specifically comes out and tells us that that is not true. That you cannot believe that. So if you're going to look at the way things are now and say, let's posit what it might have been like working backwards, you will come up with answers to those formulas. But what Peter is telling you is that your fundamental assumption is wrong. The belief that nothing has changed is is not biblical. Science is therefore absolutely limited in what it can say. If you're going to say, I mean, science, evolution in a lot of ways is a lot like a writing prompt. It's like, how... (laughs) 
Explain <laughs> yeah. how we could get the world we have now without anything supernatural, you you, without God, and without changing so any laws good. and without changing anything. Yep. Like, okay, yep. we're going to come up with something. Uh-huh. But Peter comes in and says, you forget, don't you remember that God flooded the whole world? Mm-hmm. And if people don't believe in creation, they really don't believe in the flood. I'll tell not. you what. It Never mind the fact that every culture thing, has yeah. a flood story. Of course. Remembering that. that and, and you got to, like I just did a minute ago, stop and consider just basically, if this really happened the way the Bible described it, right. what would have happened? And as we just said, it would have completely rocked the world. It would have completely changed the ecology of the world and changed the, the way the world works. And that God made it differently than it is now. And God deliberately worked in and brought his hands onto it. And Again, so, just just biting Ken Ham's rhymes. He, he always says, "What what would you?" I can't do an Australian accent. Not billions even of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the exactly earth. Exactly right? right. He's like, "What would you expect to find if if this was true? You'd expect to find billions of dead things." And he says, "What do we find? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth." When I was a little kid, never forget my dad, who you know was teaching me all this stuff. He would take us up to um, I'm going to forget the name of the exact place, but it's in the East Mountains in Albuquerque, and he would take us up to this peak that you could go. And you can find not when I say not one, not two, you can just find fossils everywhere. And, and and what's very interesting about these fossils, Tyler, is they're all pretty uniformly two things. It's either plant matter, which I guess that makes sense. It's on top of a mountain or seashells, fossils of seashells everywhere on top of a mountain that I, I hiked it. It's very hard to get up to. There was no ocean there when I hiked. Now, you can call me an idiot, but. It's the onus is on you scientifically to explain under uniformitarian principles how seashell fossils came to this mountain peak. But yet, from from my perspective, using the worldview that I have, and I'm, I'm a catastrophist is the fancy version of what our scientific point of view is, which is that there was a catastrophe that changes what we can expect to understand about the about origins. Yeah. People have a pre a pre-commitment to the idea that things happen slowly over a long of period of time exactly the way they do now. Of course. But that's not what the Bible tells us. And this is where I have to challenge those that hold to some of those views we talked about beforehand. Mm. Why are you not taking what, forget the Old Testament, the New Testament, what Peter tells us, yeah. that this would happen, that people would come scoffing at the gospel because they don't believe in creation and the flood, and you're going yeah. to completely reinterpret the Old Testament to accommodate those people? Yeah. What have you done? Yeah. Do you not realize what you've done? Yeah. Why? And I believe a lot of this is people that are just afraid to look stupid. I believe some of them are trying to get academic tenure and their university will never allow them to stay on board if they know that they're a oh, creationist. I can speak to this, I can like speak that, to this that, directly. That's got to stop. I can speak what are to we this doing? directly as somebody who's been tempted by that and who has also spoken to dear friends of mine who have gone down that path. You, I never forget I was convicted deeply by this article. I, don't, I may have a copy of it somewhere that where they were talking about the sin of Christian desire for respectability. And I, I just it just rocked my world to read this because they said, what you want is to be respected by people who don't know God and don't love you. Why would you seek their respect? And it's an open question, right? It's like, that's a great question. Why am I seeking the respect of the world by embracing elements of the world's philosophy that are not compatible with, with the way that I have chosen, what I believe is truth, right? I mean, you can't have both of these things together. And I'll, Tyler, I'll just, it got to me, honestly, and this is, you know, man, are you going to get on some weird places on the internet when you start thinking like this? This goes back further than like the 1860s, man. This is like when the church began to capitulate to the enlightenment and began to say, okay, you know, yes, this is, this is scriptural truth, but there's also radical, <laughs> radical, 
I invented that word. It's rational and logical together. Um, there's also <laughs> rational. I know you're going to say radical and magical. Uh, or that. Um, there's also rational and logical truth that can supersede this. You know, in the in the medieval era, not a great time necessarily for biblical interpretation, but at the very least, there was this understanding of theology was called the queen of sciences. And that meant what that meant was we use this to understand these. We can only understand sciences when we understand the queen of sciences. That was blown up like a bomb in the Enlightenment. I believe personally that as Christians, we need to understand that the Enlightenment stands between us and the correct way to view Scripture. The, the way to view Scripture as this tells me what the real world is. Now, everything I build has to be built off of this. Yeah, and, and that may sound radical to you, but honestly, but it's I, Christianity though. That like, is we, how it we're is. We're built off of. Yeah, I mean, don't we come to Jesus and we find when you are saved? Don't you come to the Lord with your hands wide open and say, "Lord, just give me whatever you got." You know, every time we talk about this subject, I, I will sometimes be not tempted, but I'll just I'll just have to remind myself, like, am I sure that I really believe this stuff? It's when I pull up that passage of Second Peter three. And it's like I don't know how you ignore that apostolic warning about the exact thing that we're facing this day. Yeah. You, you've got to There's watch out for this. There's an authority there that you should be ready to listen to. Yeah. Right? And, and I would I say, mean, yeah. if I, and here's the thing, I have never, I'm sure they're out there, but I have never heard somebody that is not a young earth creationist address that passage. Oh no, Ken Ham, sorry, tapping the sign. <laughs> Ken Ham used to, that he used to talk about that constantly because he said, look, it's in Peter. He's saying this. I mean, yeah, I don't that know was how a, that you was get a, around that. I don't know yeah. how. Oh yeah. You, Big, you yeah. look at that. I mean, it's because it's, you read that time. and it's like, you know good and well what it's about because yeah. you see it every day. And right. like, we're going to go on, board, follow after these people. So look, I, I we're speaking very strongly, but as we wrap it up, I want to do remind us of something here at sure. the very end. That the exegesis of Genesis is not a salvation issue. You can be saved if okay, you believe sure. in theistic evolution, progressive yeah. creation, what have you. And I, I want to make that very clear. I speak strongly about a lot of different doctrines. I think this is an important one. Let me ask you this question, Zach. When does this become a salvation issue for somebody? Because I believe it can. Mm. I don't think it is. I think there are people that will come to your church like, look, I just can't get on board of the six days. I believe that God made the world. I just don't think he did it this way. When does this become a salvation issue for somebody? When have you seen it get that far? I think when it affects the, their doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture to the point that they begin to question things like the incarnation because they have already questioned the inerrancy and authority of scripture. And so that's why if you hear us speaking strongly about these, it's, I hope it's from a pastoral heart of understanding where this ends up for some people, not everyone. Remember, like I said, you know, C.S. Lewis, one of the great heroes of the faith, one of a personal, you know, hero of mine, he had a very low view of the inspiration of scripture and, 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 and on this point. And yet he he was able in his mind to submit himself to, but I know the, what the Lord has said. I'm going to, you know, the, great, very good. I don't think that dancing on the edge of a precipice and not dying means it's a good idea. And that is where I see this as a Christian and where I've shared other believers. I say, look, I, can I pastorally share with you that this is the beginning of a process that will lead to you at some point questioning salvation issues? Because how can you not question a salvation issue? The very same book that you're relying on to tell you that God descended out of heaven, a miraculous thing, 
<laughs> entered, you know, became entered is wrong. Excuse me. Uh, you know, we even have to be careful about how we talk about these things because they're so they're so vital. God is incarnate, and then He died, and then He was resurrected, and now He lives. You know, intercedes for us ever at the Father's right hand, still fully God and fully man. That's all miracles, dude. That's all supernatural. I said at the Afterglow conference this year, if you don't want to believe in miraculous supernatural things, this is not the religion for you. Go yes. be a Buddhist. And, and that right there, Tyler, that point, I am now, I think, more stubborn than I ever have been that self, am I comfortable with this? Yeah. Salvific Christianity is supernatural Christianity. Well, of course it is. Me- meaning, course it meaning, is. meaning, if you want to have Christianity without those, if your goal here, if the reason that you are compromising on these things is you know good and well, I want Christianity, but I'm not comfortable with the supernatural, then brother or sister, I hope you're a brother or sister, that is of the highest danger to your soul. Yes. Because that's the real world we live in is a supernatural world according to scripture. If you accept that point, I think you are, are now able to believe <laughs> the rest of the things the Bible says, if you don't, how do you believe any of it without the supernatural? Yeah, and I don't believe you can you can live a life of arrogance towards the Bible, of like I don't believe God's word, and th- and this is when yeah, these people no, no, it's, it's yeah. really unfortunate too that such f- people very often. Uh, first of all, many of them don't even like the term inerrancy and they want to deal with it, which that just tells me there's a reason we have the term inerrance, inerrancy and to watch out for people like you. You know, so if you yeah. <laughs> find yourself developing a problem yeah. with it, you, you're not you're not in this camp. You are telling on yourself. You know, so yeah, yeah you're uh-huh. tattling. But uh, many people want to hold on to that definition as much as possible because they know that they'll be uh, pigeonholed. But you should be pigeonholed because you don't believe that one of the most important things. But uh when you come to the word of God and you say, well, look, it doesn't have to be, you know, it's, it's a book. It's not, you know, God's truth is bigger than just what's in the book. And God is bigger than just what he's revealed. And there's more. Yeah. But are you, you tell me that you have the arrogance and the ability to go beyond what is written and to tell us what God meant and what he was lying about and what he was telling the truth about. I, I cannot accept that. Right. That's, that's not even postmodernism or modernism. That's just a sinful heart of arrogance before God and saying, we know better. And I would rather live my life with a humility towards the word. Maybe I'm not a great theologian. Maybe I'm just more of a pastor or just a regular old Christian, but that's okay with me. But I will throw out to all of you that are maybe concerned and worried about this and don't know what to think. There are good answers available to this stuff. We've mentioned Ken Ham way too many times today, but guys like Jason Lyle and guys like Henry Morris and Christians that have gone ahead, not only done the Bible study, which is what we did today, but have done the science. And they said, look, there's more to it than this. They're, they're not, this is not the only way to look at this. And a lot of this stuff is right what we should expect as Christians. So even, even like I said, progressive creationists like Stephen C. Meyer and guys like that, sure. that spend their careers poking holes in Darwinism. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to talk about it because many people have staked their whole careers in, on Darwinism <laughs> and wrote their dissertations on it. But I'm being a little facetious now. I just, we're coming to the end here, guys. The plain reading of scripture is going to lead you to believe that God created the world in six days, Mm -hmm. that there was a global catastrophic flood, and that one day Jesus is coming back in a similar catastrophe of fire. I am not comfortable going beyond that because the modern current scientific theory says otherwise. Because after Jesus saved my soul at the cross, I I will accept anything he tells me. And I do not believe I have the capacity to come to God's word and sort out what is and is not inspired. And are there good scientific answers to, to address those apparent contradictions or issues? Yeah, 100%. But I will say, Tyler, as a person who's walked through this, you know, I got to the point, I think we talked about this even in the last episode, where I had to realize, yes, but those answers aren't my faith. 
My faith is in the Lord. My faith is in his word. My faith is through the power of the Holy Spirit. That comes first. And then the answers are nice. They're a good help. Like as C.S. Lewis even said about the atonement, he said, this is a, this is an understanding of this. If it helps you great, but if it doesn't throw it away. If the scientific answers help you and shore up your faith, great. If you come to a point where you're like, I think because I don't have a satisfying scientific answer, I'm going to question this. Throw that scientific answer away and wait a couple years and see what what's going to happen. Yeah. Because we don't we don't rely. We're not staking our faith on something as paltry as scientific theory. We're staking our faith on the the the, the things revealed to us, the truths revealed to us by Scripture, and that's a safe place to put your faith. That's right. And next time we are going to get into some of the, that scientific information, but mm-hmm. we wanted to start with looking at the text of Scripture itself because it, it pretty much narrows what our possibilities are. So yeah. uh, next time we will be back and talking about that. We've got a couple more episodes on this one, hoping to get some guests for the first time. If it doesn't work out, that's all right, but we're doing our best to do it. And uh, we appreciate all you paying attention and liking and subscribing and all the rest of that. <laughs> and uh, don't forget to check out uh, the book Difference Makers, which is still available, ironworksmedia.org, and it's also available on Amazon. Thanks for coming guys we'll see you next time thanks guys see you